Chapter thirty two of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty two. For is not God Almighty? Brandon Mountford had been lying in his quiet grave at Rothsea for some weeks when the yacht which should have carried him to a summer sea was ready to leave by the shipbuilder's yard, and it seemed to Sibyl that there could be no more useless toy than the boat which she had built for his sake and which his eyes had never looked upon. All Coverdale's powers of persuasion were needed to awaken her from the apathy of grief into which she had sunk, and to induce her to start a cruise for her own benefit. But, warmly seconded by Cora, his arguments finally prevailed, and before the spring was over, the Esperance was sailing southward with Lady Penrith, Cora, and Lady Selina, and two young cousins, naval and military, by way of escort. The spinster aunt had swooped down from a great house in North Riding, where she had been making a very long visit to one of her wealthiest nieces, a lady with a large heart and a populous nursery, and with whom Aunt Selina was an esteemed authority upon all juvenile ailments. Life on board the Esperance afforded a pleasant relief from the atmosphere of measles, whooping cough, and humdrum at Waddingley Park, and Lady Selina resigned herself to the loss of a London season, thereby putting money in her purse, while she enjoyed the dolce far in Sicilian waters or in the Greek archipelago. And so the spring months passed away, and in June... Lady Penrith and her party landed at Genoa, leaving the yacht to go round to Marseilles in charge of the naval cousin, to be berthed there until her next cruise, while the three ladies settled quietly at Bellagio till the end of the month, when Lady Selina went back to England, and Sybil and Cora moved northward to the Tyrol for July, August, and September, only returning to Cumberland in October. Then came the long, quiet winter, with friends fit but few, and for their most frequent visitor, Mr. Coverdale, from his cure of souls at Workington, where he was doing good service among a crowded mining population. It was a comfort both to Sybil and Cora in those quiet days of autumn and early winter to know that the new Lord Penrith was not living at Calander Castle. He had indeed been there very little since he came to his estate. He was not popular in the neighborhood, and he had frankly expressed his hatred of place and people. He had spent the winter after his brother's death at Monte Carlo, where he had achieved all he desired of fame by his success in pigeon-shooting, and the society papers reported that he was at Monte Carlo this winter 
also that he had been laid up in paris during the whole of november and had been operated upon by a famous french surgeon the nature of the operation not being stated a letter from lady selina who had been dissipating in the brief gaieties of a november session informed her niece that lord penrith had been suffering from a tumour on the face which was likely to cause lifelong disfigurement and that the people at monte carlo found him very much altered from last season an inquiry at the castle made personally by mr orlebar confirmed this account his lordship had been very ill and still an invalid he was expected to spend the rest of the winter at monte carlo where he had taken a small villa near the casino he is your father cora and you may consider it your duty to go to him in his affliction sibyl said gravely when she and cora had heard orlebar's report he is my father but i recognize no duty where he is concerned except the duty of silence cora answered with a look so grave and resolute that lady penrith felt that there was no more to be said she knew enough of coralie by this time to know that the girl was not heartless and that her repudiation of all filial duty must needs be based upon some sufficient reason there was nothing flippant or reckless in the daughter's manner she dismissed the subject sternly with solemn decision of purpose as a roman daughter might have done brooding over the girl's conduct sibyl arrived at the conclusion that cora had investigated the story of marie arnold's death and believed her father to be the murderer some cause at its grave would alone justify her conduct it was a shock for the nerves of both women when they heard early in the year that lord penrith was at the castle he had been brought there marked for death mr dewsnap told lady penrith one afternoon early in march when they met beside a cottager's sick-bed about a week after the earl's return is the case really so hopeless she asked i fear so all that surgery can do for him has been done in paris and here the last word has been said i saw him this morning i see him three or four times a day but there is nothing for me to do except regulate the amount of morphia that is given to him he has excellent nurses dr malcolm comes from edinburgh every third day but science can do no more for him and the only relief is the inevitable end of all things life can be nothing but a burden to him yet he clings to life with almost frantic intensity has he ever spoken to you of his daughter lady penrith asked when she and the doctor had left the cottage and were walking along the village street together no the greater part of his days and nights are spent under the influence of narcotics and the realities of life outside his own room affect him very little he asks for no friend doesn't care who waits on him values his nurses for their skill and nothing else he told me this morning that there was a time when he wanted fresh young faces about him pretty faces for choice but now 
he would have gorgons if gorgons had more skill in nursing than the pretty young women he is very often in a state of semi-delirium and he acts hideous tragedies in a kind of waking drama a common symptom when the brain is steeped in morphia unhappy creature then there is no hope for him he must die he must die and in his case no one can regret the end since it is the only possible release from suffering sybil wrote an account of this interview in a letter to john coverdale pray go to him and if you can turn his thoughts to god and persuade him to confess his sins it will be one more good work done she wrote her desire was obeyed and it was not possible for a christian priest to approach the bed of suffering with more kindliness and discretion than marked mr coverdale's visit to lord penrith the two men had met in the past and coverdale entered the sick-room as a friend but here friendliness was of no avail the sufferer treated him with savage insolence and ordered him out of the room i know your craft he muttered you sneak into my bedside under the guise of friendship a man with whom i never had one thought or feeling in common and presently you will bring a little black book out of your pocket and drop on your knees and pray me into worse horrors than those i suffer now i don't want you or your mumbo-jumbo you are abracadabra go to your starving miners and wash your worn-out jargon down their thirsty throats with soup and wine they'll swallow one thing with the other but don't come here john stone show that gentleman the door if that won't do throw him downstairs i've no use for him here he laughed a spasmodic laugh at the american slang which closed his speech his eyes were deeply sunken forehead and cheek were livid and all the lower part of his face was hidden by linen bandages lazarus coming out of the tomb was the image which flashed into coverdale's mind as he looked in sorrowful reproach at that dreadful countenance a wicked lazarus with malignity burning in those sunken eyes a lazarus summoned not out of the grave's dreamless slumber but out of hell fire mr coverdale told lady penrith that his visit had been ineffectual but he told her nothing more he would not sadden her by any description of that bed of doom it needs something higher than human influence to touch that hardened heart he said we can but leave the sinner to his god the only deathbed repentance that is not an idle mockery is the repentance that comes from within not from without the sinner may find god in his own heart even after he has mocked at christ's message from the lips of the priest it was more than a week after this when a letter was brought to lady penrith sitting alone in the march twilight 
the note had been delivered by a groom from the castle who was to wait for her ladyship's answer before he rode back she told the servant to return in a few minutes when her answer would be ready and then she went to the window to read her letter by the fading daylight while the footman lighted the lamp on her writing-table the envelope was addressed in a strange hand the letter was written in pencil and except that it was on thick vellum paper and headed with a castle address it was almost as uncanny a scrawl as that which the ragged messenger threw into her lap on the moor the doctors tell me my end is near you have suspected and hated me for the last twelve years it may gratify you to know that you had reason come and hear my confession and if you want to hear it come at once my life is like a thin little flame in a spirit lamp sustained by strong stimulants and will soon vanish into darkness don't be afraid that you will hear a pulling deathbed repentance i believe in neither pardon nor pity i die the victim of an inexorable scheme of creation which includes the horrors of disease that torture and kill damnable maladies which no human skill can cure do you think that any man doomed as i am doomed is likely to go out of this life listening to twaddle about divine beneficence i shall be with you as soon as my carriage can bring me these words were written hastily and thrust into an envelope as the servant re-entered the room to receive lady penrith's order for her coachman the light phaeton with a pair of horses was to be got ready immediately lady coralie has not come in yet i suppose no my lady when she comes be sure she is told that i have been sent for to the castle she is not to wait dinner cora who had taken very kindly to riding since she came to ellerslie and who had always been well mounted by her aunt's liberal care was out with the hounds cora was a success in the hunting field where light hands a neat waist and indomitable pluck tempered with common sense scored almost as high as a handsome face beauty blundering over a hound or beauty getting in the way at the gate is not altogether precious to the sportsman the deep shadow of night was round the gaunt grey fortress and the darker shadow of death was in the room when sibyl approached the sick-bed and seated herself silently in the place which the nurse indicated a large armchair at the head of the bed besides those heaped-up pillows from which the ghastly face looked out white as the linen from which it was bandaged pinched 
by the invisible hand which had set its mark upon every feature. Leave me alone with Lady Penrith. The voice was low and muffled, utterly changed from the metallic hardness of Hubert Urquhart's enunciation. The two nurses vanished through a curtained door that opened into a dressing-room, where all the paraphernalia of the sportsman toilet had been swept away to give space for the apparatus of sickness. Kettles and saucepans and spirit lamps, new inventions for comfort or relief, extravagant in price and infinitesimal in value to the sufferer, contrivances tied once, perhaps, and never tried again, the dreary details in the history of failure. Hubert Urquhart looked at his brother's widow with a cynical smile, a smile and lips contracted by pain. I thought my letter would fetch you, he said. You have come to see God's judgment upon a sinner. You remember how Herod the king was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost, an example of God's judgment, swift and sharp, a ready money vengeance. And now you think that this cancer which is killing me is God's judgment upon murder. Bosh, Lady Penrith. Clerical spuffle. There are good men and women all over the world doomed just as I am doomed, with pain as lingering, with a fate as hopeless, Christians of purest water, shining lights in the darkness of this world, suffering just as I suffer, when you, and such as you, talk of them, you give your God praise for the blessed example of their affliction, and recognize the ineffable wisdom that tortures and kills. You see me stricken down, and you exalt God, the avenger. You see no inconsistency in the hand that strikes wolves and lambs with the same rod. Come, own that your heart burns with triumph at seeing this living wreck which I still call me. A few hours hence, the undertakers will be talking of it. I am sorry for you as I can be, remembering what? Brandon Mountford suffered. He suffered? Why, his life was a life of ease and comfort. His ten dull years were no worse than one dull afternoon, measured against what I have suffered in the last six months. Don't waste your pity upon an epileptic, whose convulsions may be ugly to look at, but leave no memory inflict no pain upon the patient. He suffer? Keep your pity for the man whose tortured consciousness no narcotic can annihilate, whose sleep has been peopled and spun out into seemingly eternity by dreams of indescribable horror. And where do you think those dreams took me, Lady Penrith? What do you suppose was the almost invariable background of those hideous fantasies. The wood where you killed Marie Arnold, she answered, her eyes looking into his as he sat up in the bed, 
grasping her hand with his clammy fingers and bringing his bandaged face near hers so that she might hear the feeble voice you are good at guessing yes that is the place where the morphia fiend leads me he takes me by the hand a little black devil with a mocking grin his skinny hand clutches mine and he drags me into the wood and she is there lovely and cruel as she was that evening in the golden sunset oh god how beautiful her eyes were with that golden light reflected on their velvet darkness how cold how cruel such bitter scathing words hatred of me love of your lover hatred that turned to loathing when i drew her to my breast and kissed her reluctant lips and tried to make her understand that passionate love like mine was to be valued or to be feared and if she would not have me for her husband and take her chance of my doing well in life and making a great lady of her i would be revenged on her somehow a love like mine was not to be trifled with any more than a raging fire but she was so bold and so proud she flung me off her with her strong young arms she laughed at my passion and my threats she accused me of only wanting sir joseph's money not really caring for her she was so strong such a grand creature in her strength and beauty and i had a knife in my breast pocket mountford's knife which i happened to have borrowed a day or two before and clutching at my breast beside myself with passion i felt the knife and knew that it was there you can guess the rest you may remember that i was late for dinner but that i sat down with you and your father and it was wanting in no observance of a gentleman it was not till a long time afterwards that you began to suspect me sibyl heard him in silence and remained silent now when the bloodless fingers loosened from her hand and he sank back among the pillows exhausted by the most sustained effort that he had made for a long time his breath came and went in hoarse pantings his wan hands moved restlessly upon the coverlet and those haggard bloodshot eyes rolled wildly in their orbits as he looked at sibyl's white face have you nothing to say he gasped at length nothing god help you in this dark end of your wicked life you're not surprised at my confession no no i knew you were the murderer i have been convinced of that for a long time you broke my father's heart shortened his life you spoilt brandon's life and mine and your victim that 
young, bright life. There never was a cruel or murder. What good can I do here? Pray to God for your pardon. What I think or feel can matter nothing to you. You can restore nothing, undo nothing. No, the past is the past. I cannot bring Marie Arnold back to life. I would have given twenty years of my life to undo that. Twenty years, did I say? I would have given all that was left of my life for one day with her, to die, knowing that I had not killed her, that the murder in the wood was only a hideous dream. Call the nurse. It's time for my morphia. The pain, the racking pain is beginning. I must have my dose. And then the morphia fiend will take me by the hand and lead me under the fir trees, treading the paths where our footsteps have no sound on the fir needles, and I shall see her again in her white gown with a red gash across her throat. The nurses came, quiet, prompt, with quick movements of skillful hands, one on each side of the bed, one supporting the patient, while the other administered the narcotic. Sybil sank on her knees at the foot of the bed, and with bent brow and covered face, breathed a prayer for God's mercy to a dying sinner. Then she nodded a silent good night to the nurses and stole softly from the room. Those trained hands had rearranged the disordered pillows, had placed the sufferer's head in an easier position, had smoothed the silken coverlet, laying it lightly over the wasted frame, and the morphia was already at work, tranquilizing the limbs, creeping through the labyrinth of the brain, giving respite from bodily torture, but bringing with it dreams that racked the mind. In Hubert Urquhart's confession of past guilt, there had been no word of a still darker crime, a crime planned in cold blood, thought out and slowly resolved upon, carried out with unwavering craft and purpose, and with as little compunction as the hunter feels for the agonies of a noble beast tracked across the wilderness, watched and waited for and slain without mercy of that crime which coralie knew not one word had escaped the murderer on his deathbed and the daughter's knowledge of that dreadful secret remained unshared and unsuspected lord penrith lingered for more than a week after his interview with sibyl but in those last days and nights were one long morphia sleep and an almost unbroken pilgrimage through the dark maze of hideous memories the skill and the care of doctors and nurses were employed to keep him alive when nature would have let him die and to reduce life to unconsciousness throughout those extra hours 
wrested from death. At last the end came, only a sinking deeper into that morphia darkness, only the fall of death's curtain on those distorted memories of past sin. A gentlemanlike vulture in the shape of an undertaker came post-haste from Carlisle and took possession of that which had been Hubert, tenth Earl of Penrith. There was a stately funeral, an earl's coronet upon a velvet coffin, an open hearse like a triumphal car, with six black horses tossing their Flemish heads and curving their heavy Flemish necks, and all the neighboring gentry sent their empty carriages to express respect for a man who had been universally disliked and whose absenteeism had been regarded except by the local tradespeople as a merciful dispensation the distant cousin who succeeded to the title and entailed estates was an elderly gentleman of unblemished respectability with a large family of sons and daughters the sons sporting the daughters plain pious and hopelessly unfashionable just the sort of people to spend ten months of the year at the castle and to furnish an eldest son who would stand for that division of the county and to protect local interests in the stress and storm of the imperial parliament the new earl and his family were aware how much of their prosperity they owed to the dowager lady penrith and they took pains to cultivate her friendship and to be civil to coralie urquhart who had been so unaccountably estranged from her father postscript what remains to be told of sibyl's life history another year of quiet widowhood in spite of the pleading of a devoted lover and then on a grey morning at the beginning of the year the plainest of weddings in the parish church at ardliston husband and wife went straight from the church to the station and thence to london on the first stage of their journey to rome to that city of churches where it was John Coverdale's delight to expound ecclesiastical history written in all that there is of architectural grandeur, from the grey antiquity of St. Clemente to the gleaming granite and modern mosaics of the mighty basilica which commemorates the martyrdom of St. Paul, an Italian honeymoon which lasted from winter to spring, yet seemed only too brief and early in april sibyl and her husband left florence regretfully on their return to england he to resume the burden of duty not among the miners at workington but in a populous and wealthy centre in east riding where the fine old church is only a little less than a cathedral in spaciousness and beauty a cure which has always been held by a churchman of mark and has always been regarded as the prelude to higher dignities john coverdale has made himself known as a fine preacher an indefatigable worker a preacher with all the philosophical breadth of lydon and the magnetic personality of frederick robertson 
a preacher who has been able to beguile the rough miners from their sabbath luxury of shirt-sleeves and laziness dog-fights and rat-catching and to hold them spellbound by his impassioned appeals to that best side of human thought and feeling which will always answer to him who knows how to call the man whom coralie described as cold precise and priggish has shown himself gifted with the finest qualities of preacher and priest and he is warmly welcomed to the greatest yorkshire city by all that is best and most cultivated among the community difficulties and dissensions will arise doubtless in some quarters for coverdale has a strong hand in the reform of old abuses and is one of those men of whom it is said that they will always have their own way but his way is a good way and his influence is a good influence for all in his parish most of all for the poor and for those who most need the awakening call the stringent yet tender hand leading them into the fold this busy centre sibyl learns to understand new phases of life she finds herself no longer in a small community where one's wealth can achieve wonders of order and prosperity and one man's influence can shape all the things to his liking but in the thick of the bitter battle among the revolts and conspiracies of labor against capital and the exactions and injustices of capital against labor the contest of strength with strength the appeals to public opinion the power sometimes reckless and fatal sometimes wise and beneficent of a free press the heat and strife of politics here she must live through seasons of fear and sadness the terrors of a fever-stricken town the alternations of local prosperity good times and bad times the collapse of great enterprises the ruin of great commercial houses that have been ranked among the wealthiest here she has to learn the lesson of life in all its stern reality and here she has to discover how little her wealth can do where needs are so constant and so manifold that her fortune and her life labor are used for the help of the suffering for the reclamation of the lost none who ever knew could doubt my aunt is a saint said cora perched daintily on her hunting saddle sitting in a sheltered corner waiting for the fox to break cover and chatting cheerily with a group of admirers my aunt lives only to do good to other people and she could not have done better than to marry mr coverdale who is a remarkable man and would have made an admirable pope in the days when popes did a great deal more good or a great deal more harm to the world than they can do now coralie has no lack of admirers in these latter days she is no longer the coralie urquhart for mr nicholas hildrip of hildrip grange near workington has allowed himself to fall a victim to her sharp tongue neat figure light hands and good seat and meeting and conversing with her through a couple of seasons mounted on all that is handsomest in thoroughbred hunters has come gradually to believe that cora 
is as good-looking as her horses and has made her mistress of himself and his estate lady coralie hildrop gives hunting breakfasts has a furnished house in mayfair for the season goes everywhere is liked by a good many people and feared by the rest is mundane to the tips of her fingers an affectionate wife a good friend a bitter enemy and without mercy for any pretty woman who misbehaves herself the end end of chapter thirty two end of thou art the man by mary elizabeth braddon